If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn in them to the book of Psalms, Psalm 137. Uh, if you don't have a copy of God's Word, again, the bulletin is um, the bulletin insert is the place for you as the passage is printed there today. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, highlighting the cover, uh, today we begin a new series that I have entitled The Life of a Pilgrim. You'll remember those of you who were here two weeks ago, as we began the new year, I spoke about a new resolve as we talked about Jesus being the light of the world and a light that illumines, a light that guides. I talked about a new resolve for us as God's people to live in the light, to be bearers of the light of Christ in the way we conduct ourselves, to be serious and to be intentional about holiness. And so beginning this morning and for the next several weeks, I want to continue to prod us in that direction. I could have called this series a number of different things, but I landed on the theme of pilgrim because I believe as I want to pound home this morning through Psalm 137, that viewing ourselves as the Bible presents us is foundational for us moving forward. Living that life of holiness, of godliness. You see, a pilgrim is a traveler. A pilgrim, a pilgrim recognizes that he is not at home. Many of you are familiar with the name John Bunyan. John Bunyan, a 17th century Christian author and preacher, wrote a classic allegory about the Christian life entitled Pilgrim's Progress. And I'm sure some of you saw the word pilgrim, you saw that picture on the front, and that's exactly what you thought of. And so as we think about a pilgrim's life, I want to, uh, for the next several weeks, I'm not sure how long this series is going to take. I have it mapped out for a couple mom- months anyway, probably up until uh, the, the season of Lent and Easter. But today I want to talk about the pilgrim's place. That's the title of the sermon Today, next week, I want to talk about the pilgrim's promise and power. And then in the subsequent weeks after that, I want to talk then about the pilgrim's progress and what does that look like. And the pilgrim's progress is going to be uh, a series of uh, sermons on some of the besetting sins that we struggle with as a church. I've alluded to some of these. Respectable sins, as they've been called by others. Sins that we so easily disregard and overlook. And so that will be the bulk of the series. But today, the pilgrim's place. Next week, the pilgrim's power and promise. And then uh, the subsequent weeks, the pilgrim's progress. So that's where we are headed in this uh, brief series for the next several weeks called The Life of a pilgrim, but today we go to Psalm 137, a great psalm, I think, for us to think about and meditate on before we, as we get into this series. And so listen as I read Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. 
How shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? If I forget you, O Jerusalem, let my right hand forget its skill. Let my tongue stick to the roof of my mouth. If I do not remember you, if I do not set Jerusalem above my highest joy, remember, O Lord, against the Edomites, the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare, down to its foundations. O daughter of Babylon, doomed to be destroyed, blessed shall he be who repays you with what you have done to us. Blessed shall he be who takes your little ones and dashes them against the rock. This is the word of the Lord. Well, you know I've preached out of the Psalms before. You know that I love the Psalms. I love the emotions of the Psalms. The honesty of the Psalms. And I love even this psalm with its emotions. I don't think I have to tell you that this is a psalm that is far from a pick-me-up this morning. This is not... uh, This is not Bobby McFerrin's classic, Don't Worry, Be Happy. This is not uh, Marvin Gaye's, How Sweet It Is to Be Loved by You. I mean, some of the Psalms are like that, and they're wonderful as they adore God and give praise for what He's done and give thanks, but this seems to be something different. In fact, we might say that this is the blues. This is the blues. And the blues of the deepest kind of blue. But I probably don't have to tell that to you this morning. I know I don't. Maybe a bit of you are feeling it this morning. Because you know that in a broken, sinful world, that life is not a bed of roses. That your life has maybe been characterized by the blues. See, the Bible never teaches that life is a bed of roses and the experience of those in the Bible, of course, show that to be true. And yet, whereas so many blues songs in the modern era that we might hear, that we might enjoy, while so many of them simply wallow in their circumstances, the blues of the Bible are different. Because the blues of the Bible are not dead-end streets. The blues of the Bible give us hope. Because the Bible gives us hope. The blues of the Bible give us perspective. The blues of the Bible give us purpose. And I think that's what we find here this morning in Psalm 137. Yes, Psalm 137 is a psalm that was written to a unique people in a unique time, in a unique Place and yet it has so much to tell us here this morning. But to begin, I've got to take you back a bit. I've got to set the stage, set the context of where this psalm is coming from. What are the life circumstances that are creating this song of blues? We've got to go all the way back to the year 586 B.C. It was in that year that the mighty kingdom of Babylon rolled into Jerusalem, the centerpiece of Israelite life. And the Babylonians came to slaughter, 
to slaughter men and women and children. They came to decimate structures, to destroy the city and to cart back its survivors to their capital city of Babylon. It's the exile, which many of you are so familiar with in biblical history, and it's there where God's people remained for many, many years, decades in fact, until the next kingdom came along, the kingdom of the Persians and The Babylonians were engulfed and God's people were allowed to be returned. But it's that backdrop of exile, of being in a foreign land. Babylon was some 500 miles northeast of Jerusalem. Near modern day Baghdad, just southwest in fact of modern day Baghdad, Iraq is where Babylon would have been. But that's the backdrop of this psalm, of this song. And so when we come to this song, when we come to this blues, it's the painful memories of that time that are fresh in the minds, in the life of God's people. They're thinking back and they're remembering. They're remembering. Knowing how easily His people forget It's remembering that's at the center of this psalm. And this psalm, like a lot of psalms, divides so nicely into sermon form. We have three points, and you can see there are kind of three sections there in the psalm. Three stanzas, we would call them. And so there are three things that I think we need to think about, and we need to meditate as we think about this ancient blues song of Psalm 137. And the first one is this. Never forget that this is not your home. Never forget that this is not your home. It's likely that in a modern mobile culture that all of us at some point have felt displaced. We felt far away from home at some point, either visiting a place or Possibly moving to a new place. I remember feeling that way. Anna remembers feeling that way when we moved to California in the summer of 1999. After growing up on the East Coast uh, with seasons and distinct rain and spending time in the Southeast where you would have these thunderstorms that would roll in during the summer and the hot, humid days. Suddenly we moved to California and it did not rain for six months. And there were no deciduous trees. There were no crickets at night. It was just quiet. Well, it wasn't quiet. You heard cars is what you heard. But I just remember, and Anna remembers feeling so out of place and so longing to return to where we once were. I'm sure you're familiar. I'm sure you have experienced something familiar What you've experienced, what I've experienced is really just the tip of the iceberg of what God's people have experienced here and expressed in this psalm. You see, Ann and I moved to California, of course, voluntarily. God's people were ripped from their existence in the land of promise, in the land that God had given them. And they were forced to carve out this existence far, far from home. 
We lost some of our familiar sights and and sounds and surroundings, but they lost all of that, plus their possessions, plus many of their family members, some of them even their own children were gone as a result of this invasion, as a result of this captivity. In Babylon, Babylon was so very different. And it's great for us, Americans here in 2012, because we can picture some of what Babylon is. We remember the invasion. Uh, we remember the, uh, the troops rolling into Baghdad. And we remember seeing that desert, dry, arid place. Babylon was situated along the Euphrates River and it had this system of canals that worked across this huge plain. And it, it just looked very much different than the rolling hills of of Judah. And so the psalmist is looking around and he's just looking at this this foreign topography. And he's longing for home. He's weeping for what is familiar. And then the longing of these musicians and these singers, it it, it gets even worse because they're, they're tormented by their captors as their captors demand that they sing. And we're not told much about this group, but we're told that they are requesting songs. They're mocking God's people. They're saying, hey, you, sing us one of those songs about how God is always with you. Sing us one of those songs where you say that your God is more powerful than our God and then all the nations that surround you. Sing us one of those songs where you say that the Lord is your shield. Where you say, blessed are those who dwell in your house. Oh yeah, where is that house now? See, God's people are being mocked. They're being tormented. And this was nothing new really for them. Psalm 42 describes... Similar emotions, my tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Where is your God? See, God's people had often received the jeers and the taunts of the nations surrounding them, but here, in this case, it reminds them that they are not at home. And that's where I want to first be challenged this morning. Here in 2012, modern day America, 2013, thank you Bob, modern day America, you see in one sense, and of course in God's providence, this is good. It's good that God's people are feeling this. This suffering is reminding them that Babylon, with its willows and its waterfronts and its canals, is not home. Because there were some people, there were some Israelites who were forgetting or who had already forgot. And so the taunts of of, uh, the captors are not hitting them. Why? Because they've long forgotten how to sing the songs of Zion. Their emotions have long subsided for the land of promise because they have drunk all that mighty Babylon has to offer them. And now they're just another one of the Babylonians, just getting by. Those of you who know the Old Testament, you remember the story of of Daniel. 
Remember the story of Daniel in his defiance in this same land, the land of Babylon. We ask ourselves, why was Daniel so spotlighted in the land of Babylon? Why was his stand so out of the ordinary? And the reason is because so many of God's people had just assimilated themselves into all things Babylonian. They had forgotten the songs of Zion. They had forgotten the God of Israel. They had forgotten Yahweh. They had forgotten that they weren't at home. You see, as we turn this to us, as the church, we know that the Lord Jesus has called us. That the Lord Jesus has set us apart. That we are to be characterized by another world, another agenda different priorities. We are, in a sense, resident aliens here in Babylon. And yet, how easy it is for us to just become another Babylonian. Called to be different, and yet just blending in. You see, we, we sit here and we, we're not taunted. We're We're not persecuted. There's no fear. We live in unparalleled comfort and ease. And yet maybe persecution, maybe some taunting would do us some good because maybe, just maybe, we need to be awoken from some of the idolatry of so many of the frivolous things that we are chasing after. We need to be jolted into remembering that this is not our home. One writer expresses the heart struggle this way. I may have read this to you before. He writes, I am wired by nature. He expresses my heart, I know. He says, I am wired by nature to love the same toys that the world loves. I start to fit in. I start to love what others love. I start to call earth home. And before you know it, I'm calling my luxuries needs. I'm using my money just the way unbelievers do. I don't think about people perishing. Missions and unreached peoples drop out of my mind and I stop dreaming about the triumphs of grace. I sink into a secular mindset that looks first to what man can do and not to what God can do. It's a terrible sickness. Psalm 137 reminds us, people of God, that this is not our home. That you are pilgrims on a journey. You are an alien with customs, with attitudes that aren't always supposed to fit in. This is the first foundational thing that I want us to be challenged with this morning and as we launch into this series about new ways of thinking and living and new attitudes that should characterize us. Because if we can really digest this, I think we change. Our mindset changes. The way we spend our time changes. The way we spend our money changes. Remember, don't ever forget, this is not your home. That's the first thing. But then the psalm goes on and it gives us not just the problem, 
if we want to call it that. But it gives us some remedies. It gives us some helps for how to move forward. Because we see in the psalmist a recognition that, yeah, this is not my home. I look around and I don't see things familiar. And I long for what I was made for. And yet the psalms give hope. And this psalm does. And so the second thing I want us to think about for a few minutes is this. Always remember and return to the focus of your journey. Always remember and return to the focus of your journey. And really this is verses 4 through 7 where verse, verses 1 through 3 were that first point. See, being reminded that we're not at home is, is not enough. We need grace. In the midst of a world that wants us to conform to it, we need grace to keep our focus elsewhere. And that's exactly what the writer of Psalm 137 does. He keeps his focus elsewhere. See, this is truly a song of two cities living in Babylon and yet longing for Jerusalem. People love our city for a variety of different reasons. They love it for its culture. They love it for its outdoor activities. We've got the coast. We've got the mountains. We've got this clean air, lush green landscape. People love New York City for its culture, its restaurants, its, its shows. But that's not what this psalmist is longing for. He's not longing for Jerusalem as a city. He's longing for Jerusalem as a place that is steeped in religion as a place that ultimately is where God dwells. You see Zion in verse 3 and Jerusalem throughout the Scripture are words and places that are associated with the covenant, with this relationship that God has established with His people, with the temple, the place of God's presence among His people, with His kingship and His rule and with atonement, the, the place where you came and you offered sacrifices. Where you were reconciled before a holy God. These are the things that the psalmist is longing for as he was reminded that he's not at home. And yet he feels the temptation to forget. He feels the temptation to forget and he fights it. And he says, essentially he invokes this, this curse on himself. If I forget you, may my hands and my voice Be useless. And remember, this psalm was written by musicians, by singers. They don't want their skill. They don't want their song if the Lord is not the subject, if the Lord is not the center. And so he takes this defiant stance against his captors who mock them requesting songs of Zion in a foreign land. They say, no, how can we sing the songs of worship in a place like this? I won't sing and play songs before the world to entertain the world. How can I sing with these enemy glares all around me? You see, in difficult circumstances and by the grace of God in a foreign land, the focus of the psalmist and the focus of God's people was on the Lord, on His presence, on His promises. Jerusalem, all that it embodies, all that it represents, there is my life. There is my joy. 
That is what I'm striving for. So again, as we turn this to ourselves, so we apply these next few verses to ourselves, we ask, is Jerusalem our highest joy? Is it the focus of our journey? Of course, I'm not talking about the city. I'm talking about everything it stands for. And for us, in the New Covenant, even to a fuller degree, See, Jerusalem was the place that was marked by sacrifice, by ritual, by the Holy of Holies and a presence of God that was mediated by a priest that now because of Jesus and only through Jesus, that curtain of separation that we read about has been torn in two. God's presence is ours with an intimacy, with a confidence that God's people never experienced in Babylon or in Jerusalem. And so the writer to the Hebrews exhorts, run with endurance the race. Doing what? Looking to Jesus. Fixing our eyes on Jesus. Jesus and the joy that he has purchased for those who will trust in him. That is the focus of our journey. That is what we ought to long for in our lives. Our lives every day are these battles for worship and treasure. Every moment, what are you going to worship? What are you going to treasure? Are you going to content yourself with an empty cistern? Are you going to go to the fountain of living water? Are you going to live for the kingdom of self? Are you going to live for the kingdom of God? I know that's why you're here this morning. That's why I'm here this morning. That's why we need this morning. That's why we live in a world that needs this morning to each week come and hear what God has done and to use the language of our confessions and catechisms to put ourselves under the means of grace. The way that God communicates to us, His people, what He's done and who He is and how that should make us different. Not just this week, but today. And at noon. And at three o'clock. See, gospel, truth, and gospel perspective is what we need. As we focus and fix our eyes on where our journey is headed. Well, one last truth for us to think about for a few minutes. Verses 7 through 9, I kind of want to skip them, but I won't. One last truth for us to think about this morning. Keep before you the certainty of your future. Keep before you the certainty of your future. You see, in these last verses of this psalm, the psalmist cries out with some pretty stark words. 
Some pretty controversial words. Why does he do that? He does that because he knows he's not at home. He's fixing his eyes where he needs to in his journey on Jerusalem, his highest joy. And he knows the future. The future for him and for those around him is certain. He doesn't know exactly how things are happening. I'm not saying that, but he does know the character and the promises of God. He knows the certainty of his future. And so he puts these painful memories that he's having into God's hands, hands that are faithful, hands that are just, hands that promise complete restoration. You see, we so often need to be reminded that we are not at home. But for the psalmist, that was apparent. All he needed to do was look around him, and he was reminded that he was not at home. He was reminded in part by the injustice of what he witnessed both presently as he sat on the banks of Babylon, but also as he thought back to that invasion that brought him there. A couple years ago, I watched a documentary, which I don't recommend, but I watched it. Some of you may have seen it. Bill Mayer put out a documentary called Religious, Religious, I think is how you pronounce it, meaning ridiculous, where he kind of went after all of religions, And he mocked them, and he ridiculed them, and he sought to show how irrational they were and how they were just the reason for so much ill in our world. And one of the things that he brought up in that documentary as he examined these different people, as he interviewed these people, was was this verse, this last verse of Psalm 137, where he asked, So you worship a God whose word praises the dashing of infants against rocks. He doesn't sound so loving to me, is what he said. So how do we handle these verses, these final verses? Are they just uninspired words of of hate and and frustration and, and revenge that have slipped into the Scriptures? Does the writer of Psalm 137 just need to Cool down? Take a break? Well, the answer to these questions, I think, is is no. And here's why. The psalmist describes a time that had been a horrid time in the life of God's people. War is ugly. But war in ancient times was particularly brutal. And the Babylonians were particularly brutal. And so a common practice of an invading army in the ancient world was to destroy the next generations by, yes, taking the children and ending their lives. But as the psalmist writes these words, he's not writing words of revenge. He's not writing words of personal vindictiveness. These are words that, this is what we need to see, these are words that flow from injustice, not just aimed at him and his people, but against God and his honor 
and his reputation. And really these words express and remind us of the gravity of who God is. And in addition to that, the psalmist is doing exactly what he ought to do when he has these kinds of injustices against him, when he is faced with this kind of injustice. He prays his anger. He takes it to God. He says, remember, O Lord. He's not jogging the Lord's memory. He's calling the Lord to action. He's taking it right where it belongs in the hands of a sovereign God of justice and righteousness. And he's appealing for God to handle things. And he does this just like he's presenting a a, a case before a judge. He says in verse 7, remember what the Edomites did. The Edomites were cheerleaders for the Babylonians. They were egging the Babylonians on to finish the job. As the Babylonians invaded Jerusalem, the book of Obadiah talks about how the Edomites not only encouraged the Babylonians to level Jerusalem, but then they looted the city themselves, and any Israelites that were fleeing Jerusalem, the Edomites would catch them in order that they could deliver them over to the Babylonians. And the writer of the psalmist is saying, remember what the Edomites did. And the Babylonians, they deserve what they have done to us. And so you are the judge. Justice is yours. And a suggested sentence is from Deuteronomy, from the principle of retribution that you find there. A life for a life. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, a hand for a hand, a foot for a foot. You see, when we set these words in the context of righteous judgment against a holy God, against a God whose people represented Him, the horror of the actions doesn't diminish, but the justification for them does come into view. Sin is awful, but God's judgment is even more dreadful. And the Israelites knew the certainty of their future. They knew the certainty of those around them and their future. They knew that justice would be served, and so they left it there. And of course, this hits us in a different way. Because as we think about a longing for justice... In a sense, we immediately think of the fact that justice has been served. That justice has been served. That yes, the Babylonians and the Edomites were awful. And their actions were horrid and brutal. And yet left to ourselves, we are no better. Our sin deserves no less before a holy God. We deserve to be destroyed. And yet the message of the gospel and the message that I have the privilege of reminding you of this morning and proclaiming to you this morning is that divine justice has been served as a son. As a son has been destroyed. The Son of God destroyed for you that we might have life. And it's because of the destruction of that son that our future is secure. 
See, the psalmist couldn't see all the richness, all the fulfillment in Jesus, but we can. And we can rejoice. And so in the midst of this journey, pilgrim, that you are on, your future is secure because of Jesus. There are all sorts of challenges, I think, that are laid on us from Psalm 137 this morning. I don't know precisely how the Holy Spirit is growing you. I know how I want the Holy Spirit to grow us as a church, me as a man, but I know that the Holy Spirit does different, does that differently in each of our lives. And maybe you're here this morning and you simply needed to be reminded that this is not all there is. Maybe the Lord is focusing this morning on a particular idolatry. Maybe your preoccupation with something in the world and it's pointing you back to the joy of your journey. Encouraging you to stop chasing that treasure that ultimately will be empty. But chase and pursue and put as much effort as you're putting into that, into pursuing the Lord. Or maybe He's just challenging with you, challenging you concerning how you deal with injustice. Maybe you've been treated unjustly and you're struggling to place it in the sovereign hands of the Lord. Letting Him deal with it. Regardless of where God's Word is pointing you this morning, I think He's pointing us all to His Son. Because it's only in Jesus that we have hope. It's only in Jesus that we have a future. It's only in Jesus that we have certainty. And that Jesus is even now, preparing a place for those who are His. And so go from this place, remembering that you're not at home. Remembering the focus of your journey, where it needs to be. Empowered by the fact that your future is secure. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for the promises of Psalm 137. Lord, we admit, so, so hard for us. So hard for me to keep perspective. Lord, you've given us, as your people, this day, this time of worship. You've given us your word, the means of grace in order to communicate and set before us and remind us once again of what we so easily forget. Father, impress these truths on our hearts that they might provide a foundation for us to build upon over these next several weeks as we think about what You call us to be as a people and what that looks like and, and how starkly that should be in contrast to so much of what we see around us. Father, give us Your grace. Thank You for the Lord Jesus. 
because of Him that we don't leave this place thinking we've got to be good enough to be loved. It's because of Him that we leave this place fully loved and desiring now to live out of that love. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.